0: Welcome to the Choate Family Office podcast series. On this show, we explore important topics related to wealth management, investing, and managing risk across generations.
1: Hello, this is Geraldine Alias, Senior Portfolio Manager at Choate Investment Advisors. Joining me today is Chip Grace, a founding partner of May River Capital. May River Capital is a private equity investment firm based in Chicago that seeks to help lower middle market high-caliber industrial businesses grow and thrive. May River started in 2012 with a simple premise, leverage the friendship, complementary skills, and experience of the three founding partners with a singular focus on underserved but attractive market-differentiated industrial growth businesses. Thank you very much for joining us, Chip.
0: Well, Thank you for having me. It's uh, really nice being with you today. Thank
1: you. Chip, if you don't mind, I wanted to start off by talking about the economy. People often say that the U.S. no longer has a strong industrial sector. Is that your experience?
0: Uh, it's not. Um, you know, our, our brand of industrial is really focused on high value industrial businesses. So these are typically companies that uh, have their own intellectual property. Uh, it may be a traditional form of IP like engineering drawings, patents, etc. It may be a unique manufacturing capability. Or some type of process know-how that's you know differentiated, but but most of our businesses, if you think of you know traditional manufacturing, which is the bulk of what we do, we own a service business uh, today, but but most of what we do involves some form of manufacturing or assembly. If you think of manufacturing, our typical companies are producing low-volume parts that have high mix characteristics. So these are again, kind of smaller volume sizes and uh, a great variety of product. So a lot of the typical products that are considered to be either have been offshored or, you know, are thought of as being, you know, produced in Asia or otherwise, you know, tend to be, you know, very high volume type of products. Most of what we do has never gone offshore. We certainly have supply chains that exist in Asia and, and Europe and, and other places. But um, by and large, you know, manufacturing, our brand of manufacturing in the United States is still alive and well. These are again typically uh, very differentiated products and, and, and services. They tend to have a high cost of failure and and they may be selling into some form of Regulated industry or, or in market, or they may also be serving a clientele that has very uh, rigorous standards for product quality. For example, we own a business that produces valves and actuators primarily for the Navy supply chain. So, those are um, by definition, you know, have to be made domestically. Um, there are a great number of specifications that are laid out by the Navy and by the prime contractors that really disallow those types of products to be produced offshore or even any type of supply chain within the production set of a given product to be offshore. So those types of companies have never gone offshore, will never go offshore. Again, these are kind of high cost of failure, low cost product, mission critical type product applications. So you know, while we do leverage, you know, global supply chains, I'd say the vast majority of our, you know, manufacturing, you know, really has has never left the United States, and and certainly more recently, you're hearing, uh, uh I think a, a louder drumbeat with respect to onshoring, and that certainly has, um, you know, that narrative has certainly picked up over the last, you know, six to twelve months with respect to, you know, critical parts of the economy like uh, the pharmaceutical you know, uh, category, uh, PPE, et cetera, things that have really risen up through the pandemic, I think have, have shined a, a very bright light on uh, this whole concept of reshoring and the need to produce those types of, of products entirely domestically and not be relying upon global supply chains. So that's a, that'll be an interesting trend to watch over the next decade. Can't be done overnight, obviously, but uh, certainly we think it'll benefit the industrial economy stateside.
1: So Chip, that's fascinating. So can you talk a little more about the evolution of the industrial sector in the U.S. economy, maybe 20 years ago, 10 years ago, now, and obviously you already gave us a little insight into potentially what the future will look like?
0: Sure, yeah, I'm I'm uh I'm not much of an industrial historian, but I'll I'll take a, <laughs> a, a stab at it. You know, I think uh, offshoring uh to lower cost labor environments I think really began in earnest I'd say in the 80s and and continued, you know, through the 90s and into the 2000s, obviously beginning with China, but but then, you know, seeing more activity in Mexico, nearshoring, seeing Southeast Asia have its comeuppance, particularly in light of uh, the pandemic, uh, where a lot of the the production has been moved to you know places like Vietnam or or at least secondary sources being created in Southeast Asia, as an example. But you know you, you now have the advent of automation, which has become a huge category in and of itself within the industrial segment, and and I think will narrow that gap with respect to the cost of producing a given part whereby domestic sourcing very well could could be you know roughly proximate from a a cost standpoint when you factor in kind of fully landed cost with shipping time on the water things of that nature so i suspect that automation iot these kind of new economy new you know, industry 4.0 discussion points. You know, will all work collectively to create a more robust domestic manufacturing economy. Clearly, the narrative that I discussed earlier, with respect to you know reshoring, which you're hearing certainly in the political environment now, uh, in light of the pandemic, but but also. Around concerns involving intellectual property theft, you know, you know, national security, as you're you're hearing about with respect to Huawei and, and other factors. These are all interesting, you know, points that I think point to you know a, a general movement within the domestic industrial economy to, to become more robust. But well, our brand of industrial has never really been susceptible to offshoring fully and again going back to kind of the the low mix high volume environment being susceptible to offshoring and that's been overseas for a very long time things like consumer electronics you know have been offshore for you know forever as long as i've been in, in this business in you know kind of the mid 90s when i when i got into investment banking originally so uh, our brand is again kind of high mix low volume which is the opposite and and those products by and large, have, have never really gone offshore, albeit um, we do source globally across our portfolio.
1: That's fascinating, Chip. I know you started May River for a specific reason with a specific focus, and I'd love to get a little insight into the private equity side of the industrials landscape. In, in other words, you know, why start May River? What was specifically something that you thought was missing in the private equity landscape?
0: well we we um our, our origins in the industrial uh, segment in, in my case and my partner Steve's case really go back to our upbringing Our family business was started in the 1890s, believe it or not and was in our family It's an industrial business that's now owned by a a larger publicly traded conglomerate but was in our family for four generations and you know you grow up as a kid and and the discussions around the dinner table are about are about the family business, and you know our parties were were company parties that we had at our house and so that 's kind of how I grew up and, and steve 's family's business is also very similar also an industrial company was started by his grandfather in the thirties so it's it 's kind of in our blood and and something that uh, is is really kind of second nature to us as far as a, a focus and an interest. But what we observed, you know, at my my former firm and you know throughout our careers, Dan the same at, at his former firm, was that the industrial segment within private equity was was really populated by firms that had had tremendous success and had really grown themselves out of the lower middle market. And what I mean by that is they had raised subsequent funds with increasing fund sizes in and, and, and now today probably managing billion to four billion five billion dollar funds you know because they had success and generated great returns for their investors they were given the latitude and the support to raise subsequently larger funds and what that did was really create a bit of an air pocket within the lower middle market which we define as you know companies with EBITDA under 10 million that we felt was underserved And and that that's really where we play, you know, three to 10 million of EBITDA is really our sweet spot to initiate a platform. And what we find in in that part of the the market from a a size segmentation perspective is that, you know, upmarket private equity has a hard time investing in those types of businesses from a return on time standpoint and from a, a capital allocation standpoint, meaning. You know, they have a hard time as a billion, two billion dollar fund justifying a five million dollar EBITDA business because the equity check isn't isn't large enough. Uh, and every deal, you know, takes a similar amount of time, whether it's a five million dollar or a fifty million dollar EBITDA business. You still have to kind of work through the diligence process, the documentation process, you know, work through the portfolio management phase, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the larger funds have really, you know, tried to focus up market. And has provided us with an opportunity within the private equity landscape to take advantage of that gap. The other thing we've noted is that strategic buyers, again, these are largely publicly traded uh, industrial corporates. They really have a hard time buying those those same businesses. The five million dollar EBITDA example that I gave earlier, for the same reasons, which is you know this return on time concept, and you know these are. Businesses that just aren't needle moving, you know, as a you know, couple, three, four, five, you know, billion dollar market cap company, you know, they're not going to get a lot of bang for the buck by buying a five million dollar EBITDA business. They'd rather see us uh, buy those businesses, build them, you know, uh, introduce real processes and systems, introduce a real commercial front end, a sales and marketing function within the business, top grade leadership teams scale them you know, from a $5 million EBITDA business, say, to a 15 or a $20 million EBITDA business, and really create what we call a move-in ready house so that this buyer, whether it's a strategic acquirer or an upmarket private equity firm, really doesn't have to do the heavy lifting that we did to really create that move-in ready house. So uh, a simple kind of strategy, but it's very difficult to execute. And we've uh, thankfully been blessed with excellent relationships within the executive area of of the industrial space. We have terrific executives within our bench, so to speak, that really help uh, us transform these businesses, scale them, improve them, make them more valuable. And then hopefully, again, kind of creating that move in ready house, graduate them to a strategic acquirer or a bigger
1: private equity firm. And everyone says right now, there's a lot of dry powder out there. In other words, a lot of capital that is waiting to be invested in companies. Is that your experience?
0: It is. I I think it's kind of undeniable. If you just look at the statistics, you know, it's, I think now a a trillion and a half of, of private equity, you know, dry powder. I think the latest statistic I saw, you know, it's a staggering number. But again, I think most of that capital is really pointed toward bigger businesses. And uh, I think, you know, a lot of people talk about the private equity landscape, you know, as as a barbell, you know, you either want to be at the very small end of the barbell, which is where we play with a very specific sector focused, ours being high value industrial growth companies, or you want to be, you know, at the bigger end of the barbell, multi-billion dollar funds, mega, mega funds. I think the tough areas in between, you know, where you get strategic buyers, you get up market mega funds, get, you know, um, leverage packages that are five, six, seven times EBITDA or greater, you know, that that's a hard place to play. Um, that's why we want to stay focused exclusively on the lower middle market and not change really anything about our investment focus or strategy, uh, just get better at, at what we do.
1: One of the many things I love about May River is your motto, always take the meeting. How do you go about doing this during these unprecedented times?
0: Yeah, my, my former uh, boss said private equity is a shoe leather business, which I've always um, taken that to heart and uh, stuck with me. But, you know, we we really believe that um you know, as the as the phrase indicates, you know, always take the meeting. You really never know where your next opportunity is going to come from, whether that's a, a traditional means like an investment banker or a, a business broker or some other M&A intermediary, or it could be an executive from industry. Uh, it, it could be a consultant. It could be an LP. It could be a lender. You know, these are all folks that have touch points into relevant deal flow. And so we Go out of our way to take any and all meetings, uh, calls, et cetera. Really trying to, you know, tell our story as to what is our investment focus, how are we differentiated, both in terms of that focus, but also our firm culture. What's important to us? How we, how we really put the, the human element at the forefront of what we're doing each and every day. Uh, how we, you know, are terrific partners to, to management teams and business leaders. You know, that that's really where I think the rubber meets the road within the lower middle market. Yeah, these are generally small businesses that are typically founder, family, entrepreneur owned. People matter in in, in these businesses. They can be fragile enterprises and um, you have to really, you know, take good care uh, of them. And by the same time, you want to make make progress, make change in a positive way. So there's a, a fine balance between that. But yeah, always take the meeting. You never know really where your next deal opportunity is coming from. It's, it's hard for guys that that love getting on airplanes and and really would rather be talking to a, a business owner or a management team than than anyone and touring facilities. It's it's been hard not not kind of tapping into that that lifeblood. But we're making do. You know, Zoom is is a great tool. But it's it's really no replacement for, you know, person to person interaction to physically walk up a, a plant floor, understand, you know, the flow of products, the the nature of the manufacturing, you know, talk to the people that are operating the machines. You know, there's there's really no replacement for that. So I think it's going to be a little awkward, you know, as, as we kind of work through the remainder of this year into next year. You know, I think uh, there's no there's no real blueprint for how to conduct yourselves in, in this environment, but obviously listening to the health experts and trying to um, in, invoke, you know, all the guidelines into our own businesses. But, you know, it does make for a challenging dynamic when you're um, wanting to get on a plane and, and go meet a management team if if that's just not a safe proposition. So we're, we're making do, but uh, it's tough for guys that really kind of thrive like we do in, in meeting with with companies and management teams and business owners.
1: So shifting gears a bit, I imagine all your portfolio companies were deeply impacted by COVID-19. Would you mind giving our listeners a sense of what life was like for them back in March?
0: So we have six platform companies today, just to, to give some context. Um, they range in size from you know, the lowest, from a revenue standpoint, 15 million. Our largest business is roughly 60, 60 million in revenue. So again, these are smaller businesses. We have 16 facilities globally. We have an operation in France. We have two locations in the UK. We have two locations in Canada. All 16 of our facilities globally were deemed essential businesses or whatever that country's equivalent of that is, for example, in France or or Canada. They stayed open, you know, throughout the pandemic. So uh, we, we worked really hard with our management teams to, you know, work through that process to, to remain open. And uh, our leadership teams did an excellent job of making sure all of our employees were, were safe and healthy and felt comfortable coming in to work every day. You know, we implemented some unique processes during that time. For example, we instituted staggered shifts in many of our uh, operating environments, whereby, you know, say the red team worked on Monday, Wednesday and Friday and the blue team worked on Tuesday, Thursday and Saturday, the idea being that if, you know, there was uh, an outbreak uh within either the red or the blue team, you could you could shut down that team and and continue to operate the facility with with the other team. So things of that nature that that we did which were just, you know, not not earth-shattering in terms of their novelty, but I think just smart smart business decisions. But all of our businesses, again, were deemed essential. If you look at our, our revenue year over year through June, our businesses were down in the aggregate 7%, which, you know, in today's uh, GDP numbers, you know, the Q2 contraction of, I think, 30, just about 33%. Um, we certainly fared better than the broader economy and feel very good about, about the performance of our portfolio and, you know having having been down only 7%. You know we we saw the trough really it looks like in in April. That was you know the low point. You know you, you might recall Geraldine that a lot of our businesses have a have a backlog. There's a a time gap between when an order is received and when you actually recognize revenue. Um so there's a little bit of a lag effect. So March was an okay month for for most of our businesses just given they had orders in house that they processed. April was not not as great uh, as they worked off the backlogs. The order activity, I think, really troughed in the last week of March, first week of April for you know all of our businesses. But it's been increasing, you know since. Uh, it hasn't been a perfect line for all of our companies up and to the right, but a trend line nonetheless, whereby we think you know the April and May months, From a revenue standpoint, in terms of recognized revenue, was really the trough. June has improved. And so far, what we're seeing in terms of indicators for July are also positive. But it it was a a trying time. And no no doubt about it, uh, the uncertainty, I think, caused tremendous um, consternation for everyone. and, And we felt that. Our companies felt it. One thing we did recently was... You know, try to you know physically get to a few of our businesses that were either drivable or, or or found other safe means to get there, just to thank our employees for showing up every day, for keeping you know the businesses firmly on the rails. Uh, and I think that small gesture you know meant a lot to them. And so, again, we did a uh, I think as a as a whole within the portfolio uh, a great job of kind of managing through that. I think we had four COVID cases across. The entire portfolio, which all four of those people are, are back to work and healthy, thankfully, and you know, very pleased with uh, with the performance overall. But no one's really slapping each other on the back. It's uh, it's a di- very difficult time for our country, and and more globally, you know, given the high level of unemployment, the broader economic devastation that this is. Uh, has ravaged, so we're we're trying to keep our eye on the ball, but um, so far so good from our standpoint.
1: Wow, that's that's impressive, Chip. Knowing as you mentioned the numbers that have been shown recently with regards to unemployment and the economy shrinking, you know, only seven percent is a uh, decline is is absolutely amazing, especially in the sectors. Uh, the industrial sector, despite it obviously being still very strategic, you know, probably felt more than maybe some of the technology sectors that we've seen. So very impressive.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, just to add to that, you know, I think, you know, the last three years as a firm, we certainly anticipated some form of economic downturn within, you know, the coming years and, and really conscientiously tried to shift our investment focus to those businesses that were whether it's the attributes of the company, perhaps they had a, a high aftermarket or MRO type of revenue mix or the end markets that the business sells into from a demand driver standpoint, we really, you know, tried to point towards those businesses that we thought would demonstrate a fair amount of resiliency in the ultimate recession, you know, that, that, you know, lied ahead, obviously having no concept of, uh, of what what did lie ahead and and certainly the magnitude and the severity and the you know just the the, the quickness of all of this, but uh, we, we did anticipate something, as I mentioned before, you know I think we've we've navigated it quite well and thankfully invested in some some really good resilient businesses and backed some excellent managers of those businesses. so we're very pleased, but thank you
1: and I know in many cases your portfolio companies do small tuck-in acquisitions. Have those conversations started back up again, or are they still on hold?
0: They have started back up again, and you know those are typically long cultivation cycles with with add-ons. You know, you, you generally tend to plant seeds with those folks and and try to cultivate those relationships. It could be over a matter of years. And what we're seeing is that the business owners, particularly those that are kind of of a of a certain age, you know, kind of a, a baby boomer demographic. I think they're far more willing today kind of, you know, in, in light of the pandemic to, you know, consider a sale than they might have been last year at this time where things were blowing and going and the economy was, you know, going nicely and their businesses were thriving. I think it, sh- it shocked a lot of folks. And, and so I think it has opened certain of those doors back again and and, uh, brought some folks to the table. So I suspect we'll be pretty active with add-ons over the coming 12 to 18 months.
1: Great. One last question before we wrap up, which I know could be a podcast topic of its own. The CARES Act established the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, a program that received a lot of press. Would a company's involvement with the PPP change how you view their business?
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. So let me let me make a, a comment, and then I'll answer your question. But you know, in in the last couple of weeks of March, you know, when all this was unfolding, there was a high degree of uncertainty. We frankly, you know, I don't think anyone really understood what this all meant and what the impacts of their businesses, you know, were, were going to be. So we we ended up uh, applying for PPP loans in three of our businesses that qualified, and we actually received funds in in each of those three businesses as things started to come into greater focus in terms of, you know, how our businesses were impacted ultimately and as additional color came out from, you know, the Treasury Department, from the SBA, from the administration with respect to, you know, the forgiveness uh, provisions, with respect to eligibility I think the SBA, as an example, released 13 different FAQs during the month of April alone. So the the sands were shifting on the program. It was really hard to understand exactly, you know, what what lied ahead as far as that program and the forgiveness of the loans and you know all the the nuanced points, you know, criminal liability for folks that took that took. Took loans that weren't ultimately eligible was was tabled, things of that nature, which ultimately led us to return all of the funds from the three businesses that did qualify for loans. I think originally by the May seventh deadline. So as as you know, things started to unfold, and as our businesses performed well, and you know we became more certain that uh, we would weather the storm in, in good shape. Uh, without the loans or without really other you know, Im- impacts in a positive way from from these various programs, we decided to return all that capital back, and we did so by the the first kind of safe harbor deadline, which was May seventh, and I think they moved that deadline back a couple weeks um, following our return of funds. But it, it does raise back to your question. I think it does raise an interesting liability question with respect to that debt that that is on a given business and i think the the deals that are done in the next 18 24 months for companies that did take those loans will will have kind of a ppp section within the documentation because it raises a lot of issues uh, around that liability and so it'll be an interesting point within deal making for those companies that did receive those loans and we'll be in an, an interesting discussion with business owners about, you know, how to treat those loans, which, you know, today is debt, but it might be forgiven later. So, you know, kind of how do you how do you treat that? And I think the, the, the cleanest way is just to have the owners pay that off. But we'll, we'll see. It'll be uh, it'll be an interesting discussion nonetheless.
1: Well, Chip, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really fascinating conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us.
0: No, th- well, thank you. As as an industrial guy, we don't we don't get a lot of opportunities to uh, to have a podcast. So uh, it's very exciting for me, and appreciate the opportunity very much.
1: Thank you again for listening. For more information about Choate Investment Advisors, please visit www.choateia.com. You can also listen to more episodes in the newsroom of our website and subscribe to them wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify.
0: The information provided in this recording is for informational purposes only. While Choate Investment Advisors makes every attempt to present accurate information, the information in this recording may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and it may become outdated over time. The views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions only and should not be construed as financial advice for your given situation. Moreover, the views expressed by our guests are not necessarily endorsed by Chote Investment Advisors, and Chote Investment Advisors may decide to select investments on a different basis at any time without prior notice.
1: Finally, as everyone should know, past performance is not a guarantee of future performance.